Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Harvey Weinstein, meet Bill Cosby. Uh, Harvey won't be actually seeing cause in prison. Cause, cause in, is in Pennsylvania. And Harvey is sitting in Rikers as we speak. That's right. Harvey Weinstein and his fat butt are sitting in Rikers right now. And he's going to be there uh, until at least... March 11th, after being found guilty today of sexual assault in New York, um, New York City, Harvey was led out of the courtroom in handcuffs without the walker he's been using. <laughs> I don't know if anybody believes he needs, but he didn't have it when he walked out. Um, and it was a seven-man, five-woman jury that convicted him of two counts of sexual assault they also found him not guilty on three less serious accounts. The two they got him on could get uh, Harvey 20 years in prison. Now, um, Harvey is 20, or, uh, 67, so uh, that could be a problem for Harvey. And the judge sent him away immediately, so right out of the courtroom. And he won't be seen again until that sentencing on March 11th. Now, this is a big day for the Me Too movement, which began because of Harvey. Uh, and he was the big fish. That's the one everybody wanted. And Harvey's not just a rapist, you know. He's a Democrat, a big one, and a big donor. Gave a lot of money to lots of liberal politicians and their friends. You know, the ones who care deeply about each and every one of us, especially women. And lots of women, by the way, uh, like Hillary Clinton and Oprah Winfrey. I'm sure they were, they, well, they, we know they were just shocked to find out that Harvey was mistreating women uh, that they knew. Actually, women that they knew were being mistreated by Harvey Weinstein, the guy they called a wonderful person. Even though jokes were made about it at the Academy Awards and everybody in Hollywood knew it was going on. And Rikers will be quite a big change for Harvey from where he lives in L.A. And by the way, uh, Harvey faces more jail time because of charges of sexual assault in L.A., from famous people like Gwyneth Paltrow, Selma Hayek, and Uma Thurman. Now, Harvey may have set up a Hollywood record, by the way, for slime, for sliminess that'll never be broken. Kind of tough for anybody to beat his record of 90. That's right. 90 other women have brought charges against this guy. At 67, he may not have enough years left to face 90 charges. What will be good for a lot of laughs, though, will be the liberal Democrat women who will be, you know, they're going to be coming out of the uh, out of the woodwork to say how glad they are that this mean man they all took smiling pitch pictures with is finally facing justice. They're so thrilled. You might even say that uh, Harvey Weinstein is garbage, uh, which gets me to what we're going to talk about when we come back. I think it's called a segue. If Harvey's friends uh, come to power, the environmental police may be searching through your garbage to see if you're recycling enough. And my next guest will tell you why recycling is a gigantic waste of time. Stick around. We have a major problem here in Pennsylvania, very much like other addictions plaguing our communities. The threat is unregulated gambling on illegal slot machines, camouflaged as skill games. They're popping up everywhere at gas pumps, pizza parlors, and your local convenience store. State police describe these places as breeding grounds for loan sharking and money laundering. If you object to your community becoming a mini Las Vegas, make your voice heard. Call 1-888-472-4418. 
Report those places that are enticing our kids into gambling disguised as entertainment. It's an activity that siphons money away from the Pennsylvania Lottery, whose proceeds go to supporting seniors in our state. Please phone now. This is serious. That number again is 1-888-472-4418. Paid for by Pennsylvanians Against Illegal Gambling. Executive Board Member Peter Shelley. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions are posted at textrules.us. Texting and rules for recurring automated marketing text messages, message and data rates may apply. Hi, I'm Tom from K11, and I have one question for you. What size socks are you wearing right now? If you're like everyone else I've asked, you simply don't know. How could you? That's because until now, socks were made in one size fits all or just a couple of sizes to fit every size foot. But not at Kane 11. We make our socks in 11 individual sizes from 7 to 17. That's right, 7 to 17. Great looks and colors to fit everyone's lifestyle. From cotton to wool or anything in between, Kane 11's got the perfect sock for you. Better yarns, better quality, just a better sock. If you don't love them just like we do, send them back for a full refund. That's the Kane 11 promise. Once you wear a pair of Kane 11's, I guarantee you'll never go back to wearing socks in multi-size ranges again. Save 20% off your first order when you text SOCKS to 246810. That's text SOCKS. To 246810. Text SOCKS to 246810. I'm Andy Solomon. Rideshare platforms have evolved to provide riders with even better experiences. Sheriff John Wetzel, chairman of the National Sheriff's Association Traffic Safety Committee and former president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, explains. Companies like Lyft are making rider safety a priority by continuously screening their drivers. Before getting into any car, riders should match the license plate, car model, and driver's name with what's shown in the app. During your ride, you can share your location and route with your family and friends. According to Wetzel, communities where Lyft is available have also seen lower rates of impaired driving and fatal crashes. For example... Miami-Dade Police announced that there was a 65% decline in impaired driving arrests in 2017 compared to the four prior years, thanks in part to ride-sharing. Nationally, 71% of Lyft riders say they are less likely to drive while impaired because of the availability of ride-sharing services. For more information, visit Lyft.com. If you're in HR, you're probably wearing a lot of hats. Recruiter, team builder, trainer, mediator, policymaker, and of course, paper pusher. But not anymore. Bamboo HR is the number one HR software for small and medium businesses. It manages all your employee data easily and automates countless tasks so you can focus on people, not paperwork. Bamboo HR frees you from spreadsheets so you can do your real job, creating a great place to work. If the data shuffle and paperwork mountain have you ready to hang up all your hats, you're ready for Bamboo. If you handle HR records and paperwork, Bamboo HR is a dream. Let us free up your time and put your days of pushing paperwork behind you so you can focus on the people and making your company a great place to work for everyone. Try PC Magazine's top pick for HR software free today. Just go to BambooHR.com slash radio. This is a limited offer only available to radio listeners at BambooHR.com slash radio. That's BambooHR.com slash radio. This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The Answer. Well, the insanity over plastic has been one of our um, our favorite subjects around here. And with the lunatics threatening to completely overtake the Democrat Party, the chances of us being uh, ruled by the kind of environmental insanity that they're pushing seems to get uh, seem to get a little bit better every day. John Tierney is a science columnist at the New York Times and contributing editor at City Journal. He wrote a detailed destruction of what he calls the panic over plastic for the City Journal. He joins us now. John, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, John. So it's a long and uh, detailed piece you wrote, and uh, it, it can be found at uh, city dot, not city dot, city-journal.org. Um, but it's a long and detailed piece, and everybody should read it. Uh, but one of my favorite parts is about how the plastic we put in our recyclable boxes uh, in order for it not to end up in the ocean, uh, ends up in the ocean. How does that happen? Um, it, you know, it's crazy. The, the plastic panic, as I call it, is one of the most bizarre things. You know, I, I've railed about recycling in the past as being a waste of time and money. But the, the, you know, but the plastic thing is even crazier because it's bad for the environment. And one way it is, the, the whole panic to recycle plastics there's no market for plastic recyclables in this country. It's, it's too labor-intensive. 
So a lot of places, just even the, even when you put it in the recycling bin, they just still send it to the landfill. But the ones that do manage to get rid of it, that manage to find, you know, the pay extra to get someone to take it off their hands, it ends up going mostly to Asia, to countries like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. It used to go to China. China, you know, said enough of it. And so now it goes to other countries. And these countries have very primitive waste systems. And, uh, and some of that plastic ends up just going into rivers there. And that's where, you know, the, uh, you know people probably seen pictures of the, of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, and, the, and the stuff in there, a lot of it comes from fishing boats, but the rest of it comes mainly from Asia. Um, and so some of the stuff you put in your recycling bin ends up in the Pacific Ocean because it goes to these countries that do not handle their waste properly. So if you really care about flipper and, and saving you know, and marine life, put the plastic in the trash can not the recycling bin. Yeah, you have a sentence in your piece that says, if you want to protect dolphins and sea turtles, you should take sp- special care to place your plastic in the trash. Uh, I don't think there are a lot of people out there who are uh, going to buy that, John. I mean, I do. Um, I don't recycle, uh, haven't for a long time. Might have been because I've read some of your stuff. I don't know. But um, I, I just think I've always well, thought it's you. insane. No, it, I mean, it's basically a religion, you know. Um, my explanation for the recycling was that it's kind of a sacrament for the, you know, for this religion of environmentalism, and it's a way people atone for their guilt that they feel I'm buying too much stuff, I'm wasting stuff, so I'm going to recycle it and I'll feel better. And recycling is, is expensive and it's a waste of time. It costs cities extra money instead of just doing it, but at least it doesn't hurt the environment. But you know, recycling plastic, that stuff actually ends up in the ocean, which is bad. The other really bad part about this plastic panic is, I mean, this is something that really ought to embarrass environmentalists, is that when you ban plastic grocery bags, plastic straws, the net result of that is putting more carbon in the atmosphere. You know, San Francisco has estimated since they banned plastic grocery bags that the carbon emissions associated with grocery bags has perhaps doubled. And that's because when you ban those really thin plastic grocery bags that, you know, that involve very little energy to produce or transport, people replace them with paper bags or with thicker plastic bags, you know, those tote bags, and they have bigger carbon footprints. So basically, environmentalists who, who tell us that global warming is the greatest problem in the world, and then they you know, put these plastic ban policies in effect that are making the problem worse. It's just crazy, but it's it's this sort of religious emotional issue with people, and and uh, and I think there's also this thrill that a lot of people get of ordering other people around. What what's really amazing though is that there's a picture of a, a sea turtle with a, a straw coming out of his nose, um, and and you know 25 years ago millions of people would not have seen that picture. A lot of people would have. It would have been it would have shown up in various publications. But now with the internet, one picture like that can get people really scrambling. And I, I, I know for sure that that picture has gotten lots of people to stop using plastic, and I mean a lot because I, I hear about it all oh, the time. Yeah. No, that's very true. And you know, there was this BBC documentary called Blue Planet that just had a huge impact. You know, an enormous audience around the world. It inspired, and it showed you know sea creatures at you know at risk from plastic. And you know, inspired Queen Elizabeth banned plastic, you know, straws and and and, uten- and uh, plates from her estates. Which is, I mean, it's kind of funny because you know, Queen Elizabeth may have the world's largest carbon footprint. She has six enormous estates. Yeah, but and she's yet, using paper straws now. Right, right, right. So, so that makes it all better. Even though those paper straws involve more carbon emissions. Now, I mean. I'm not saying that plastic pollution is not a problem in the ocean. It is, and it actually has been increasing. It's something we should worry about. But it's not because of the, the uh, of our plastic bags and straws. That that pollution does not come from the United States. It does not come from Europe. It is not because of our throwaway societies, everyone says. You know, we handle, generally in the United States, if we put stuff in a trash can, it goes to a landfill or an incinerator. It doesn't go to the ocean. The, the stuff that is in the ocean, you know, about half of it in the Pacific, they found, comes from, comes from fishing boats. So there's a lot of discarded nets that stays there, which they shouldn't be doing. I mean, it's illegal, for, you know, for mariners to, to litter the sea. And the effort we put into this, 
you know, these crazy campaigns against plastic and, and, and all this stuff, that would be better spent trying to enforce laws against littering, both in, you know, in the ocean and also along the coast. Um, but, the tra- you know, the plastic in the ocean comes from these countries that have fairly primitive waste managing facilities. You know, people just dump stuff illegally. You know, some plastic gets burned. There's toxic fumes. It just gets burned in, in people's sort of backyard um, factories, kind of, and the, and the toxic fumes. And some of it just ends up in rivers, and, and then it eventually goes into the ocean. And you know, part of the and part of the reason that these countries in Asia and, and to some extent in Africa and South America have these fairly primitive waste management systems is is environmentalism. Because it used to be, you know, foreign aid donors um, and and government organizations to improve public health in developing countries, they would put a lot of effort into improving waste management. You know, to keep everything cleaner and healthier. But then in the last 30 years or so, the environmental movement has put all this energy into sustainable development and, and recycling and saving energy, and, and so that's distracted from just building a functioning waste management system, and therefore you've got these primitive systems that allow plastic, you know, to uh, end up in rivers and end up in the ocean. So what, uh, and you wrote about the, uh, and you, you, you covered a little bit of what you found from it, but explain what the uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is and, and what we learned from that. Well, it, it's, a, it's a thing in the northern Pacific where there's, I mean, it's not as dramatic as you think. You can't really see anything in the air, but, but it's a place where converging ocean currents tend to bring things and that they sit there. And about half of the stuff there, when they've analyzed it, um, it comes from fishing boats, and then and then almost and then the other stuff, the stuff that comes from shore, comes from Asia. You know, it, it, the consumer stuff. You know, the, it's food items and things that have you know that have labels from Asia there, and that's because these countries aren't handling their waste well enough. And we ought to be encouraging them not to not to litter the ocean. You know, there are laws and treaties forbidding this, but poor countries, you know, you know, don't have the money to do it. So it'd be nice to help them to do it, and we. Unfortunately, they're wasting all this money on you know sustainable development and and, and this other stuff that that is really not helping the environment or helping them. So we'd be you know much better off doing that. The um, you know and, and, and when you look at these facts, I mean I mean people there are environmentalists who do look at the facts and and they're starting to say they're realizing we shouldn't be shipping our recyclables off to Asia. But, you know because the, you know, some of them end up in the ocean. We should stop that. But then they say, well, but the solution is we have to recycle everything here at home. We have to have a circular economy where nothing ever gets thrown out. And it's, you know, it's this impossible fantasy. I mean, there are so many different kinds of plastic, and sorting them out is enormously labor-intensive, and there's no demand for the material. So you basically, people spend all this time sorting it, and there's really nothing. Nobody wants to buy it. Nobody wants, you know, you have to pay people to get rid of it because there just isn't that much use for it. The whole recycling movement was sort of started in, you know, in, in, um, in the 80s and in the 90s with this idea that there's an energy crisis, we're running out of oil, we have to conserve all this, these precious resources, we're running out of landfill space. None of that was true. And so it just turned out, you know, there's no reason we have plenty of room in landfills, we'll never run out of them, we don't. There's no shortage of petroleum or natural gas. We don't need to conserve it. Uh, what we should do is, you know, use these products which require very little energy. They're wonderful. They're cheap. They're durable. They're waterproof. They, you know, they're, they're these sort of miracle substances, which is what plastics used to be considered as. You know, they they preserve food so well. They prevent foodborne illnesses. They they do that. You know, one other effect of the of these plastic grocery uh, bag bans, as in San Francisco, is that since they banned plastic grocery bags, people started, you know, bringing in these tote bags more often, these reusable totes. Now, the reusable totes, they have a much bigger carbon footprint than the thin plastic bags, and people don't use them enough to, to compensate. You know, so as a result, San Francisco's you know greenhouse emissions may have doubled. The other impact, though, is that people do not wash out these totes. You're supposed to wash them every week, and and virtually no one does. When they do studies, they find that all of them. You know, they've done studies in supermarkets, and they find that all the bags have bacteria in them. And in San Francisco. 
they found that after they banned plastic grocery bags, there was a 25% increase in visits to the emergency room and in deaths as a result of foodborne illness. <laughs> so it's just not sanitary to use those those totes unless you're washing them. And if you're washing them, you're using more energy and, and putting more carbon in the atmosphere. you got to have that make that hot water. Um, the, uh, the big uh, supermarket chain here has already said that they're going to eliminate uh, plastic bags, and everybody's just thrilled about it. Um, you, it's just crazy, you know. It's insane. That, I mean, if environmentalists really cared about reducing carbon emissions, I mean, you, what you should encourage people to do is shop online. I mean, that actually does reduce you mm-hmm. know, carbon emissions, and I, and but they don't do that because it would make lives it would make people's lives easier. And I think a lot of the appeal of these bans is it's sort of virtue signaling. It, it enables you know people to feel I'm morally virtuous. I'm not using plastic bags, and I'm yeah, oh, yeah. everyone else from doing that. I, I care deeply about our planet. Um, we have a few minutes left, and we're we're talking to John Tierney. He's a uh, science writer, a columnist at the New York Times, and a contributing editor at City Journal, um, and a Central Catholic alumnus too. Oh, okay. Uh, have, we, have, have you been on here before? Cent- uh, I, th- I think we have had you on before. Uh, Central Catholic. Yeah, no, I'm a loyal Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. Uh, I worked at the Pittsburgh Press. That was one of my first newspaper jobs a long time ago. And you knew my so, brother Bill, I guess. Uh, I did. I'm a huge fan of Bill. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, here's and, the thing. Uh, uh, I, I only have a couple of minutes. I want to get to this. Um, you have uh, you wrote about they they banned little plastic bottles of shampoo in hotels out there in California. Um, I don't. Know, I guess maybe it's just San Francisco. And you call that an old fashioned sumptuary law. Sumptuary law. What what is that? And uh, how far back does that go? And how does that relate to what they're doing now? Well, sanctuary laws were these things that they were especially prevalent in the Middle Ages and you know during the Renaissance. But they would pass all these laws that what products people could use, and it was it was mainly it was sort of nobles would say that commoners are not allowed to wear certain kinds of clothes. You can't wear satin or silk. You can't have silk curtains in your home. And they had various rationales for these laws, that supposedly to save money, to prevent imported fabrics from da da da. But the real reason that they persisted, the laws never worked. But they never achieved their stated purpose. But they really gave rulers and the nobility a chance to lord it over the you know commoners. And I think that's what what, the, what is really at heart the basic motivation for these plastic bans. That's happening and, now. Uh, though. you I mean, think also, you think that's yeah, motivation now? I think that the underlying thing is that it's you know that that the, the politicians and environmentalists. Can feel virtuous that is they're flying that is they're burning all this fuel flying to vacation homes and climate conferences, um, and, and, and you know, and, and with their own huge carbon footprints, that they can say, well, at least I'm not I'm I've banned the grocery bags and I'm not using plastic bags. It's a way to sort of feel better about it. It's also you know what I call um, I call it part of the crisis crisis. You know, um, I've just published a book called The Power of Bad that looks at how politicians are constantly creating crises. These politicians in the media, the merchants of bad, as I call them, are always sort of promoting crises that enable them to expand their power, to have more regulation, and basically and benefit special interests and, and grow the government. And, and then I they can also the save you from the bad. that They create bad that they can then come to the rescue on. They basically scare you by hyping crises. That's a crisis crisis. And yeah. then they end up, you know, with, it gives them an excuse to grow the government and and institute policies that, that make the problem worse instead of solving it. I, I have, so, you know, that's it. I'm sorry. I have like 45 seconds left here, so I, I'm up against a hard break. But bottom line here is that people who are so almost religiously, meticulously um, making sure that they separate their garbage and put their plastic in little blue boxes and put them out in the street. Basically, they're they're making things worse. I got thirty seconds. That's exactly right. When you put stuff in a recycling bin, it's more likely to end up in the ocean than if you put it in the trash. And using a thin grocery bag puts less carbon in the atmosphere than using the bigger than using the tote bag or a paper bag. So you're you're not helping the environment. Hey, John, I really appreciate it. I'm out, fresh out of time. John Tierney, thanks a lot. Go Central. Thank you, John. Thanks. <laughs> I'm John Scott.
White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley told reporters today the Trump administration is working hard to keep the coronavirus out of the United States, despite showing signs of stabilizing in China, where fewer new infections are being reported, worries are growing elsewhere. The widow of Kobe Bryant has sued the owner of the helicopter that crashed in fog and killed her husband and her 13-year-old daughter last month. The wrongful death lawsuit filed by Vanessa Bryant in Los Angeles says the pilot was careless and negligent by flying in cloudy conditions January the 26th and should have aborted the flight. Fears from the widening coronavirus outbreak did rock Wall Street today, bringing sharp losses on all the major indexes. The Dow was off 1,032 points. The Nasdaq fell 355. And the S&P down 111. This is SRN News. If your family depends on your income and something happened to you, what would happen to them? You need life insurance, and SelectQuote can help you get it at a price you can afford. SelectQuote found Jacob, 40, who's in excellent health, a 10-year, $500,000 policy for only $19 a month. Not in perfect health? Don't worry. SelectQuote found Tanya, 40, who has type 2 diabetes, a 10-year, $500,000 policy for only $32 a month. We shop companies like Protective, Prudential, American General and others to find you the company with the best rates. Give your family the security they need at a price you can afford. For your free quote, call 1-800-880-7474. That's 1-800-880-7474. Or go to selectquote.com. That's 1-800-880-7474. Select quote. We shop, you save. Get full details on the example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your premium could vary depending on your health, issue and company, and other factors. Not available in all states. Dr. Sebastian Gorka explains the president's enthusiasm. There are no average Americans for Donald Trump. There's no, oh, just little old ladies. He just sees Americans, and he loves this country. And if you love it, you are as important as the vice president. As the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. America First with Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Afternoons at 3, right before John Steigerwald at 5 on AM 1250. The answer. Hi, this is Jim Daly. Join Focus on the Family on May 9th for Alive 2020, a nationwide pro-life celebration in Southern California, Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, and South Florida. Register at focusonthefamily.com slash alive. Pittsburgh is a city that stands behind our veterans. The Re-Engage Conference joins civilians and veterans together to empower them to reach their highest potential. One day only, Saturday, March 7th, 8 to 3.30 p.m. at the Heinz History Center. Join Re-Engage founders Adam and Alex Cifudo, Steeler legend Rocky Blair, along with Jeremy Statt, Ariana Hunter, Nick Grimes, Tunch Hilkin, John Kolb, and more. The Re-Engage Conference, empowering veterans, engaging civilians. Reserve now at reengagepgh.com. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy and Hagerman. Upon your passing, you wouldn't want a judge to decide who raises your children or how your estate gets divided. It is important to review your estate planning documents to ensure they protect what matters most. At Abernathy and Hagerman, we will work with you to establish an estate plan that nominates a guardian for your minor children and that your assets are used for your family's benefit. Judge for yourself. For legal help that lasts a lifetime, visit a-h.law. The Allegheny Institute for Public Policy has been Greater Pittsburgh's trusted source for sound public policy analysis since 1995. About to celebrate its 25th anniversary, the think tank's research, education, and advocacy have steadfastly worked to defend taxpayers and businesses against the inefficiency and intrusiveness of ever-expanding burdensome government. You can join the cause today by making a tax-deductible donation by visiting AlleghenyInstitute.org. AM 1250 and FM 92.5, The Answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on The Answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or radio.com. Stuck in traffic? We've got The Answer. Busy Monday afternoon out there on the Parkway West. You're pretty solid inbound. Green Tree to the Fort Pitt Tunnel. Outbound not doing too badly, though. Outbound Parkway East, though, from Bates Street to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. Delays there and the usual slowdowns inbound. Edgewood Swissvale to the Tunnel and 2nd Avenue to the Fort Pitt Bridge. Outbound 28 volume delays. Veterans Bridge to 40th Street Bridge. Route 8 to the Highland Park Bridge. And slowing down on outbound 65. Making way up to the McKees Rocks Bridge. That's a look at traffic. I'm Jenny Robinson. AM 1250, The Answer, Weather. Cloudy tonight with occasional rain from late evening on, low 38. 
Tomorrow and tomorrow night, cloudy with occasional rain and drizzle. High tomorrow, 47. Low tomorrow night, 41. Cloudy on Wednesday, rain at times, high 49. Cloudy Thursday, becoming windier and colder with a snow shower, high 28. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm Brian May. Warning, listening to this program may expose you to toxic masculinity. The John Steigerwald Show on AM 1250, The Answer. Well, maybe you've noticed that uh, Donald Trump likes to fire people. I think he did it on national TV for several years when he had his own TV reality show. Maybe you think that there's been a lot of chaos and fighting in his White House. If there has, it's nothing unusual. Uh, Tevi Troy, a former White, White House staffer and presidential historian, has a new book called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And he joins us now. Tevi, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to talk about White House. <laughs> uh, so uh, how does the uh, Trump White House compare to the last several administrations? More fighting or just more public? Well, there's definitely more publicity. I can't tell you exactly the rate of fighting in this White House versus others, because the other White Houses, I had access to archives and oral histories, and you could tell the full story. We won't know the full story of the Trump White House for a little while, but I, I will say this, I know a lot more about the Obama administration after it ended than I did at the time. And in White House, I have a lot of details that I would not have had access to about fighting in the Obama White House that just weren't available during the administration. So why is that, and what are some of the things you found out? Well, first of all, the Obama administration was particularly disciplined at keeping up this uh, idea of no drama Obama. And so if you talk to people at the time, there's no fighting, no fighting, everybody's getting along. But after the administration, a couple of memoirs have come out to show a couple of interesting things. Number one, there was a a gender-based divide in the Obama White House. The senior staff women kind of got together. They had a vulgar nickname for themselves that I'm not going to say on on family radio, but you can get it if you uh, get White House. And they they would amplify whatever a woman said uh, to the exclusion of ideas from men. And so they, they were really kind of out there saying, we're going to advance women at the expense of some of the male staffers. And sometimes, as I show in Fight House, some of the men, male staffers got miffed at being overlooked. The other thing I would say just quickly in, in Fight House is um, Ben Rhodes, who was the deputy national security advisor under Obama, had a nickname inside the White House. It was Hamas because he was so hostile to Israel. I, I'd be mortified if my nickname were the name of a murderous terrorist organization, but that, that's what it was. Wow. And um, uh, the media uh, seemed to like Obama a lot, as we all know. Um, how much of that would have not been? How, how how much of that would you have had to wait to find out if the media were not as compliant and biased? I, I, I think me, media buying the narrative of no drama Obama was definitely part of it. But also sometimes the staffers are just more forthcoming after administration. And look, while a president is in power, there are benefits to not being critical of them. And then once the president is out of power, sometimes you're a little more forthcoming. You know, I have I had access to the oral history archives of uh, previous administrations, and people are quite forthcoming in those. But those don't come out until 10 years after administration is over. So, for example, with the Trump White House, we won't know till 2031 or 35, depending on what happens in this next election. Wow. Uh, so Truman and Eisenhower didn't have Twitter. How much has that been a factor for Trump? I mean, we all know that he, you know, that he he tweets uh, uh, like crazy. But uh, you know, what what might have happened if that would have existed back in Truman and Eisenhower's day? Sure, there's an unbelievable story in White House about the Truman administration. George Marshall was the Secretary of State and opposed to recognizing Israel, which is odd given that we're such close allies of Israel today, and. Clark Clifford was a junior White House aide who was assigned by Truman to make the case in favor of recognizing Israel in front of Truman. And Marshall was irate that, that Clifford did it, and he was even more irate that Clifford won the argument leading America to recognize Israel. He was so irate that he never again spoke to Clifford or uttered his name for the rest of his life. Wow. What was his problem yeah. with Israel? Well, he thought that uh, it just wasn't a, a good bet, and he thought Israel would lose the war. But, but the, the bigger thing is the grudge that he held for the rest of his life against wow. this guy, Clark Clifford, who was, you know, obviously became a, he later became Secretary of Defense, and he was an important part of uh, the Washington establishment. But uh, Marshall wouldn't even mention his name. I think that would show up on Twitter today if we oh. had the same oh, media yeah. coverage. 
Yeah. Now, I'm old enough to remember Camelot. I was a kid uh, during the Kennedy uh, presidency, but, you know, uh, um, everything seems so wonderful. Uh, you say it was a nest of vipers. Who were the vipers, and how big was the nest? Well, the the biggest ones of all were the Vice President Lyndon Johnson and the Attorney General Kennedy's brother, Robert F. Kennedy. They hated each other. They hated each other from their time together uh, in the Senate when, when Kennedy was a staffer and Johnson was a, a, a senator and, uh, and Senate Majority Leader. And they had nasty nicknames for each other. Uh, Johnson would be called Rufus Corntone because of his Texas roots. And he, uh, Johnson called Robert F. Kennedy Sunny Boy. And Kennedy was constantly trying to humiliate Johnson while they were in the administration together, which ended up becoming a problem once Kennedy, his brother died, once John F. Kennedy died, and then suddenly Robert F. Kennedy is attorney general for a president who loathes him. Well, and that's interesting because uh, we've had this discussion about Barr uh, overdoing, I guess, uh, Donald Trump's bidding as, as, a, uh, as an attorney general as if that's never happened before. And I saw a piece by somebody who uh, referred to uh, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy being the, the, I mean, the, the president's brother. Uh, right, and and as if they didn't have, they didn't have, that he didn't help him politically being his brother. Right, that's all he did. That. Right. He's sort of a hatchet man for, for John F. Kennedy. But the, the really interesting thing is that when Bobby Kennedy now becomes attorney general for Lyndon Johnson, they have a blow-up right after the first cabinet meeting after Kennedy's assassination, and Johnson and Kennedy don't talk for two months, which is a little odd given that Kennedy was the sitting attorney general for the Johnson presidency. So that, that was a bit of a grudge there, too. Wow. Uh, and, and it's interesting that he didn't just, like, uh, that, that either Bobby Kennedy would have known that and resigned, or LBJ would have said, uh, Bobby, you know, let's just, uh, why don't we just do what we know we have to do here and let's part ways, you know, we hate each other. Well, actually, that, that's an interesting sequence I have in White House where it talks about how Johnson went to the Kennedy staffers and kind of begged them and said, I need you, I need you to stick around. But he didn't trust them and he didn't use them and they, they hated being there. While, and Johnson created a, sort of a parallel staff that were loyal to him, even as he kept the Kennedy people around doing not, not much of anything. Well, we're talking to Tevi, uh, Tevi Troy, a former White, uh, White House staffer and uh, presidential historian. His book is called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Now, uh, how much did the media know and ignore in the 50s and 60s in those administrations? I mean, we all know that the media knew what JFK was up to and didn't talk about it. Yeah, it's actually a good point, because we, since we know that JFK had all these dalliances, and Lynn Johnson, too, with women, and they didn't talk about it, I wonder which fights were kind of lost to history because the media didn't cover them. The only way I know about the fights that I cover in Fight House are because and sometimes the media covers them, and then people give their own perspective in the oral histories and the archives that, that come later. So, uh, yeah, I, I wonder if media overlooking these things led to us losing some of these fights in history. And another interesting thing in Fight House is I have a quote from a former Reagan speechwriter named Peter Robinson, who said, of course they were fighting in the Reagan administration. We just didn't have Twitter, Twitter, Twatter talking about it all the time. Uh, and, and you mentioned the Reagan administration, the difference between Ronald and Nancy and their management styles, and maybe even their politics were were maybe she wasn't quite as conservative as uh, Ronald was. Oh, that, that's true. But she was very protective of him, and so she really did not like the second chief of staff in the Reagan administration, Don Regan. And Regan uh, would fight and get into arguments with Nancy Reagan. At one point, he was so unhappy with her that he hung up on her, which uh, Jim Baker, who was the former chief of staff, said, that's not just a firing offense, that's a hanging offense. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, did Bill Clinton's and uh, JFK's womanizing and the effort to cover that up lead to resentments and fighting, too? I mean, just that in itself, just the fact that, there had to be women walking around. I, I know in Clinton's case there was, but it also with JFK, there were women in the White House every day who knew what he was doing and also at the same time were watching him being, the whole thing being romanticized as this wonderful fairy tale called uh, Camelot when they all knew what the, the yeah. truth was the exact opposite. Yeah, no, I have an interesting story about that in Fight House related to, uh, to Bill Clinton because Donna Shalala, who was his HHS secretary is now a congresswoman. 
she said in the 92 campaign, I like Bill Clinton, but he'll never be president. And when the friends asked her why not, she said, because he's got a zipper problem. And so it was known, and Donna Shalala did criticize Clinton when it came out about Monica Lewinsky. But one thing I show in Fight House is that some of the fighting actually receded in the second term because they kind of found a common front enemy, the Republicans who were trying to impeach him. And I have a great quote in Fight House from Ann Lewis, who worked in the Clinton White House, who was, when asked why she didn't go after Clinton about the womanizing, said, do you want me to side with Newt Gingrich, with Henry Hyde and the Republican congressman? She said she couldn't be with them. So she actually overlooked her concerns about Clinton's um, womanizing, and they kind of circled the wagons to defend him. It's funny how they don't overlook those same things with Donald Trump. It's funny how that how that works. Um, uh, well, you're a funny guy. You notice funny things, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Trump's White House seems to be especially leaky. Um, is it any more so than other White Houses have been? Look, the leak is a problem that has long been persistent. I have a great story in White House about Nick Kastenbach is the Attorney General under Lyndon Johnson, where he kind of tells the Post a piece of information in order to prevent a worse piece of information getting out. And Lyndon Johnson calls him up and starts yelling, I want you to fire the guy who leaked this information. Kastenbach says, I can't do that, Mr. President. Only you can do it. Johnson's taken aback until Katzenbach explains that he's the guy who leaked it and explains why he leaked it. And Johnson says, that's the first time I've ever gotten to the bottom of a leak in this town. Because <laughs> Johnson was always looking for leaks. He actually had the White House operators report back on who people were speaking to, and he had the White House motor pool report back on where people were going when the White House cars took them around. Has, uh, did you find, and the, the, the title of the, uh, of the book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Uh, Tevi Troy is our guest. Um, did you find that leaking uh, was a fireable offense immediately, or were there people who leaked, got caught, and were able to survive? I mean, that would be if I'm the president and somebody's leaking stuff that especially might be uh, a problem for me, uh, he or she's gone instantly. Yeah, there's a guy in the Ford administration named Bob Hartman who is a real sharp-elbowed player and uh, – his nickname in the Ford Lighthouse was S.O.B., and he said it was for sweet old Bob, but it wasn't, and we know better, and he knew better. And uh, he would actually leak stuff directly to Evans and Novak. He would take stuff out of the presidential inbox if they didn't like it, and he'd give it to these, these columnists, uh, Evans and Novak. And um, he claimed that Ford knew about it and that he would have these boozy lunches with Evans and Novak and then tell them everything he said. But there were a lot of people who resented his leaking inside that Ford White House, including one physical confrontation that I talk about that was a result of his leaking. What was that? So um, Al Haig, who was the chief of staff, really hated Hartman. And at one point, um, Haig grabs an assistant to Hartman by the neck. And he says, you tell that fat crowd, meaning Hartman, who is overweight and of a German origin, you tell that fat crowd that if he doesn't cut it out, he's going to leave this place on a stretcher. Wow. And you were in the White House, so did you get involved in many fights? Did you have anybody coming after you and choking you? Well, I never had a physical conversation <laughs> in the White House. But, you know, there's people who say bad stuff about you. People try to undermine you. They want to get certain positions that you want to get. It's definitely a bit of a viper's nest. And one thing I, I talk about in the White House is I called a friend who worked in a previous White House, and I asked him for advice going in. And the number one thing he said to me was, watch your back. Well, did you, now, um, is, it, is, it a, is it a problem that is not solvable? I mean, the, the, it's, it's too, are there too many people working in, in the White House and working in administrations? I mean, just if you think about they have assistant deputies, uh, secretaries of something or other. There's uh, under assistant deputies. I mean, uh, just uh, how many people are in there every day running around with the, with the ability to leak or, or get in a fight with somebody? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I actually lay out three levers. In, in White House, three levers that the president has to control this kind of infighting if he so desires. The president may not want to have it. Sometimes presidents want to have see, see some healthy uh, combat. But if the president wants to address it, the three things I say is you, you have to have an ideologically aligned staff. You have to have a really tight process, meaning uh, meetings decide things in which everybody's at the table and everybody gives a chance to say. And then third, you have to have presidential intolerance. But the president has to say, I don't want to see this stuff and I'm going to go after you guys if you cause these kinds of interpersonal problems. If you have those things, and if a president wants to pursue those things, maybe you can limit the fighting. 
What about Eisenhower? Um, I didn't. I don't see him mentioned in your in your press release, and we haven't mentioned, talked about him. Did his military well, background did, help him with this yeah, stuff? Eisenhower wanted to have a very uh, tightly run ship, very buttoned down, and he hired people of, of very similar backgrounds. There was a joke that his uh, his cabinet was at nine CEOs and a plumber, but he was not above creating some uh, healthy. Uh, healthy fights and, and um one of the people he kind of um uh challenged was john foster dulles and he put in somebody at the white house to kind of challenge uh foster dulles and foster dulles really didn't want to hear this foster dulles was sort of a a prettyish uptight guy uh, so much so that justice black once said about him i don't want to go to heaven because i fear i might meet john foster dulles there <laughs> The book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Uh, finishing up here, got about a minute left, Tevi. What, um, what, what would shock people most uh, about what, you, not only what you might have put in the book, but, but just what you learned uh, from actually working in the White House? And what, what, what do people think about the White House, maybe what might be their biggest misconception based on your experience yeah. in there? So, so I'd say the number one thing that you will learn in Fight House is just how petty people can be to one another, even at the highest office in the land. Mm-hmm. And I'm a presidential historian by training. I've worked in the White House, as you kindly said. And in Fight House, I found all of these stories that I didn't even know about, about really nasty, petty, underhanded behavior that people are engaging in at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. One of my favorites was people taking the W's off of all the computers uh when George W. Bush left and Barack Obama came in. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and there's all kinds of nasty stuff that you do to the other side. But the interesting thing about Fight House is these are all fights that take place within the same team. These oh. are people who should be on the same side. And that's when it gets really interesting, when people who are supposed to be aligned are really trying to take each other out of the knees. Well, Tevi, you know what all this stuff does, and everything I see every day coming from Washington tells me that the less influence and power all of these people have over me and you and everybody else, the better off we'll all be. That's just, why would anybody want to give these people more power? Yeah, well, well, amen to that. In fact, one of the things I say in Fight House is the reason you have all these staffers is because government started getting bigger and bigger and you needed more people to try and manage the, the behemoth. And that's what led to the fighting I talk about in Fight House. Well, my deputy assistant uh, secretary to the producer <laughs> tells me I'm out of time. So I got to go, Tevi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me talk about Fight House. Okay, Fight House, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, and we'll be right back. They blow into town with the wind, rain, and hail. And out-of-town storm chasers going door-to-door, often posing as a local company, offering a quick fix to desperate homeowners. If you've had damage to your roof, windows, siding, or gutters and downspouts, you may be eligible to get them replaced or repaired free of charge. Just be careful who you call. Visit WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com for a free inspection from one of their highly trained appraisers. With over 50 years in home remodeling, Windows R Us is the area's premier exterior replacement company for roofs, siding, gutters and downspouts, doors, and of course windows. If damage isn't your issue and you just want something new, you'll love their no-pressure approach, no hidden fees, and one of the fastest turnaround times in the industry. A company who will never skip town when it comes to honoring their warranty. Visit WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com. Mention STAG for an additional 10% off. Windows R Us, proud sponsor of the Jerk of the Week, heard every Friday on the John Stagerwald Show. WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com. If you're thinking of replacing your carpets due to pet stains and odors, you must try Genesis 950. Thanks to Genesis 950, I can have guests in my home without the shame of pet stains and odors. Genesis 950 with water breaks down the bonds of stains and odors so they're gone for good. Its antibacterial component removes pet odors from carpet and padding. All pet owners should have Genesis 950 on hand. I can even use it in my carpet cleaning machine. And it's green, so it's safe for my family and pets. Before you purchase new carpets, you must try Try Genesis 950. It's made in America. One gallon of industrial strength Genesis 950 makes up to seven gallons of cleaner. But Genesis 950 is not just for pet stains. It's great for floors, bathrooms, kitchens, garages, oil and grease stains, wheels, tires, degreasing engines, and upholstery. It's available on Amazon. However, if you order a gallon direct at Genesis950.com, you'll receive a free spray bottle and discount using code SALEM. That's Genesis950.com. Genesis950.com. Are you hiring? 
Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash America. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash America. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash America. The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer. Yeah, we didn't talk about Bernie Sanders much today, or if at all. Um, we just have a little bit over a minute left here. I, I, I'm just stunned that this guy has had more than eight people vote for him, much less has become the leading, uh, the, 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 no, the, the favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Uh, I saw him say something on Twitter yesterday. He said he made one of his ridiculous comments about the wealth and how it's it's uh, unbalanced and rich people are too rich and poor people are too poor and he's going to do something about it. He said it'll change when I'm president. We are going to make corporations put workers on their boards. And this is a guy who's running for president who has. Uh, said that he thought the Soviet Union was doing a lot of wonderful things, lived uh, Fidel Castro. And I just wonder, how does a guy who's been in government all his life and had gotten to the point where this guy has gotten, even though he's 78 years old by the time he got there, but how does anybody, how is anyone this stupid? Forget evil and, and corrupt. Stupid to think that the Constitution somewhere allows the government to come into my corporation and tell me that they're going to make me put whatever number of workers on my board because Bernie Sanders, who's never run a popsicle stand, says so. It's it's scary. And this, this guy could end up with the Democratic nomination, which I, of course, hope he does. See you tomorrow. John Steigerwall Show is a production of AM 1250, The Answer, and Salem Media Group.